This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to AOA here on this Friday, February 11th. The weekend is ahead of us. I know for a lot of our listeners, it's just another day to do chores. But as we wrap up the show for this week, we've got a lot of things to discuss. We are going to be talking about the relisting of gray wolves. The uh, court made a decision yesterday to relist gray wolves. We'll be talking to Caitlin Glover from the Public Lands Council about that here in just a little bit. We're also going to talk about Pulse crops. There is an acreage battle for everything coming in 2022. Pulses, dry peas, lentils, no exception. We're going to talk to Tim McGreevy, CEO of the USA Dry Pea and Lentil Council here in segment two. And finally, we're going to wrap up today's show talking with Dr. Ellen Wall. And I'm sure a lot of you folks have noticed diesel prices have been moving higher very quickly recently. In fact, more quickly than the prices of everything else that are moving higher. Ellen's going to give us a little insight onto just how the mechanics of of that market are changing in 2022. But first and foremost, we're going to talk about some of the changes to the Cattlemen's Beef Board last week in Houston. The winter meetings happened and the Cattlemen's Beef Board saw some changes in leadership. New chair Norman Voiles Jr. joins us today. Norm, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Well, thanks so much for having me. Well, Norm, let's see. You're a producer in Martinsville, Indiana. Tell me, how long have you been involved with the uh, Cattlemen's Beef Board? Um, I started five years ago. I was uh, first started in 2018, and uh, th so this will be my sixth year on the Beef Board. And Norm, when we talk about the Beef Board, give us a little insight. What is it that we're talking about? What does the Cattlemen's Beef Board do? It's the organization that's responsible for the beef checkoff, the dollar ahead that folks sell or get, uh, pass on to the beef board, the national beef checkoff, whenever they sell an animal. And this is not only beef animals, but also includes dairy animals. Okay, so it's that dollar goes into the checkoff fund and then those checkoff dollars are used to encourage what exactly? No, Norm, what are we looking to promote with the checkoff? We're, we're looking to promote beef. The Act and Order, which was created in 1985, and uh, then the, the actual checkoff started in 1986, was its charge is to promote beef and to uh, increase beef demand. And we have really done that over the last 35 plus years. We're looking at 2021, uh, 33-year high for beef demand. We are very proud of the contractors, the uh, partners that we have that are helping to promote beef. Absolutely. I mean, just look at the way that the U.S. consumer is spending money on beef, even though it's at record high prices. That tells us that they want what we're producing. Norm, yeah, there were some other changes to the officer team here for the CBB. Can you give us an update? Who's new on the executive committee there at the Cattlemen's Beef Board? Sure. Um, the uh, the executive branch or the, um, the folks that are officers this year, uh, Hugh Sandberg from Eckert, Colorado, has moved from current chair. He is now the past chair. I'm serving as the chair of the Beef Board Committee. The vice chair is Jimmy Taylor out of Cheyenne, Oklahoma. And the new person on the officer team is Andy Bishop from Cox Creek, Kentucky. All producers, Norm, that's the key, right? All of you folks are involved in the beef industry working to make sure that industry stays healthy. That's correct. Um, of the beef board, 101 members of this year that uh, we have on the board, 76% are cow-calf producers. There's about 10% are dairy producers. Another uh, eight or 9% are feedlot stalker, backgrounder operators. And then there are importers represented on the beef board as well. We have about eight of those folks. Okay, Norm, as 2022 gets underway, as you take on this new role as chair of the exec committee there at the Cattlemen's Beef Board, you issued a statement and you said the beef industry is facing some challenges, but there are also some opportunities. From the perspective of the beef checkoff, what are some challenges you're watching as in this year ahead? 
certainly we're always aware of um, the naysayers of not only beef production, but animal production in general, making sure that we are talking about sustainability and how sustainable the beef production in the U.S. actually is. Um, we're also wanting to talk about you know, the value of beef in our diet and how valuable that protein source is compared to some other alternative proteins and, and just the uh, overall flavor, taste, and um, responsibility that producers have in, in producing that safe uh, protein for us all. Yeah, that's the key. Getting the word out there. It's safe and it's good for you. At least in my opinion, you can never go wrong on a, on a day with beef. Norm, those are the challenges. What are the opportunities you think the checkoff is going to try to capitalize on here this year? Well, maybe one of the most obvious opportunities we have is our exports. And when we look at exports for beef in 2021, we had record beef exports, not only in uh, actual pounds of beef exported, but also dollars of beef exported. And that just continues to grow. And, and we've just seen a exponential growth in some of our markets, China specifically. Um, and this is in the midst of this pandemic where folks are not going out to eat as much. And also the challenges that we have as far as shipping the beef overseas, um, just tremendous opportunities for growth there. And then also we've always got an opportunity to educate both our producers and consumers about how valuable beef is to our economy as well as to our nutritional values. Yes, indeed. As far as reaching out to the consumers go, Norm, are there any new programs or, uh, or uh, uh, projects here from the, the checkoff this year? Well, our uh, contractors, and as I like to call them, our partners, will be coming forward in June with some new projects that they're going to have for the fiscal 22 year. But what's going on currently is that we've got NCBA, um, which is our largest contractor. They're always promoting beef, and especially with the beef, it's what's for dinner logo. That has been one of the most recognized food logos uh, that ever existed. We've also got the American Farm Bureau Foundation for Agriculture, which is educating STEM educators, science, technology, engineering, math, those educators on the value of beef production and how it can apply to education in the classroom. Other things that we've got going on, uh, some studies on the value of beef and how consumers perceive that, just a lot of different things from a lot of different perspectives trying to promote beef. Indeed. And Norm, when you're thinking about reaching out to the producers, it's worth mentioning that the uh, the Cattlemen's Beef Board is open to everyone. We all pay the dollar if you're moving cattle. What would you like to say to folks who are maybe curious about the Beef Board or looking to get involved? Sure. thing that I would encourage you, you could do today is going, going to the website drivingdemandforbeef.com, and there you'll see everything about the beef board you'll see the projects that our contractors are participating in you'll see members you're also going to have the chance to see um, our financials check all that out norm voiles new chair of the executive committee for the cattlemen's beef board norm thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today again thanks so much for having me and folks stick around when we return tim mcgreevy ceo of the usa dry pea and lentil council will be joining us here on aoa Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Oh, nice engine. Supercharged? Yep. High porosity and aggregates? Yep. Porous medium for gas exchange? Uh-huh. Microbial catalytic potential and repository for carbon and nitrogen? Check, check, and check. Oh, man, that is good under the hood. 
And to think I used to be impressed with hammies. So, when was the last time you looked under the hood at your farm's production engine? At your soil? Is it as healthy and productive as it can be? Stop by your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out and unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by NRCS and this radio station. Progressive Farmer knows you need content delivered on multiple platforms, so it's available when you want it. That's why we created our weekly podcast, Field Posts, to bring you convenient and easy-to-listen-to interviews on key topics and trends. Join me, Sarah Mock, as I interview some of agriculture's best thoughts. You'll have a front-row seat to learn what's happening in agriculture today. You can view our library of podcasts and upcoming topics by going to dtnpf.com backslash field posts. As an organ donor... Your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. You're listening to AOA agriculture of america this is mike pearson and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world keeping farmers and ranchers informed aoa now back to mike pearson Welcome back, folks. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today on this Friday, February 11th. Over the past several weeks on the show, we have been talking about the acreage battles taking shape this spring, right? There's corn and soybeans, both very profitable, farmers making some decisions. We've got corn and cotton down in the Southern Plains battling it out for acres. We've got cotton and sorghum in that same area looking for acres. There is a battle for ground to plant agricultural crops. And this is still true as we get farther north we get into the northern Great Plains, Pacific Northwest, acreage battles happening there with a different kind of crops. Pulses up there in the northern plains and across the Pacific Northwest wanted to get an update on the pulse industry. I guess you could say I wanted to take the pulse of pulses here in the United States. Sorry about that, everybody. We're going to do that today talking to Tim McGreevy. He's the CEO of the USA Dry Pea and Lentil Council, also the uh, the Pulse Association, American Pulse Association. And Tim, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Yeah, it's great to be with you, Mike. Tim, let's talk a little bit for our listeners outside traditional pulse areas. What are pulse crops? Well, pulse is actually the word pulse, Mike. It comes from the Latin root word meaning thick soup. So this is actually a pretty ancient term for these crops. And just think of the Roman soldiers back in the day when they were conquering the world. They were conquering it because they actually had pulse crops in their knapsacks that were portable, uh, affordable. They were uh, dry products. All they had to have was water to reheat them. And they were able to uh, travel long distances. So, you know, the pulses are dry peas lentils, chickpeas, and uh, dry beans. That is the definition of pulses. They are a legume crop. Uh, you know, soybeans are also a legume. Alfalfa is a legume. So are peas, lentils, chickpeas, and dry beans. But we're a subset of that family called pulses, and uh, they're, they're a terrific crop. They are fueling the Romans throughout history and now, of course, on dinner tables around the world. Uh, Tim, this last year, of course, we saw that tremendous drought across the northern plains, the Canadian prairies. Fill us in. What happened to pulse production in 2021? 
Well, the primary pulse production in the United States is in the northern tier, Washington, Idaho, Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota. Those are the, the largest pulse producing regions, at least at this time. And if you look at the, you know, the drought monitor, holy smokes, right? We were in the red uh, most of the time. So, you know, our, our production uh, went down, varied a little bit, but it was down between 40 and 60% from what it was a year ago. Tim, when a market like Pulses sees a decline of that much due to weather, does that put a lot of upward price pressure on the market for this year? Are you seeing additional contracts come through for Pulse growers? Well, we're currently in the process of establishing those forward contracts. All the first purchasers and processors are, you know, all huddling around their crystal ball saying, oh, my God, you know, what are we going to uh, have to come up with in order to compete for acreage, uh, you know, with uh, the crops in rotation uh, along the northern tier primarily. So, yeah, that, that, you know, we expect the contract prices to be fairly strong in order to compete for acreage, just like everything else. But, you know, we do have an ace in the hole uh, and that we don't really take much or if any, uh, depending on the pulse crop, uh, any nitrogen fertilizer to uh, plant and grow because, you know, these crops are one of the unique, uh, you know, crops in the family where, you know, you don't have to pour the fertilizer coals to them. They produce their own. They're their own factory of uh, nitrogen and produce their own protein to grow that crop. And, you know, the big benefit is they leave a little behind for the next crop. Indeed. And with the price of nitrogen fertilizer this year, I've got a feeling that is quite a good ace in the hole. As you've been talking to growers, do you have an estimate yet on what acreage might look like or how long until that starts to become clear, do you think? Oh, you know, I'm, I also have a small farm here in, in eastern Washington where in northern Idaho where our headquarters are. And I think, you know, Mike, I think all farmers are the same. They're, they're trying to figure it out right now what makes the most sense. I mean, every crop that uh, they're growing right now has tremendous pricing uh, opportunities currently, and that's true of pulse crops too. You know, we're we're at definitely, you know, a pricing that's, uh, you know, above our 10-year average by a long way. And, and so that's true of uh, canola. That's true of wheat. Uh, that's true of barley, which are the primary rotation crops uh, across the northern tier in the pulse-growing regions. So, yeah, it's going to be a real dogfight out there, no doubt about it, uh, for, for acreage. But, again, I think we'll see an increase in pulse crop acreage across the northern tier for the mere fact that, you know, if you're paying the kind of numbers I've seen for fertilizer, it's going to, it's going to, you know, you're going to have to have a pretty good contract for those uh, heavy fertilized crops uh, in order to, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, gonna, it's causing some, it's definitely causing some uh, heads to turn uh, about the benefits of pulses if they can get a good contract. Yeah, I've got to imagine if, if you lead the brochure with no nitrogen required, this would be the year you could see some additional interest. Tim, that's the supply side. I'd also like to talk to you a little bit about the demand side, because as I think dry peas, lentils, chickpeas, and dry beans, I think a constellation of foods that have really kind of moved into the spotlight, particularly in urban areas. Can you give us an update on, on sort of what the trend for consumer demand looks like in the, uh, the Pulse space? Well, we've seen a tremendous growth in the use of these crops moving into the ingredient market. So, you know, traditionally these crops were consumed, uh, you know, you had lentil soup and split pea soup and, you know, good chili. And, uh, and of course, then chickpeas really brought in uh, hummus, you know, in the early 2000s. We saw that really just completely take off. And by the way, the Super Bowl is coming up this weekend. You don't have hummus on your table don't be a loser. Make sure you have hummus as a, you know, a dip for those chips. So, uh, but, you know, now we're seeing pulses really move into uh, the ingredient market, you know, and in a big way as the plant forward movement and consumers start taking action on, you know, the, the foods that they're eating and are those crops, uh, you know, the foods they're eating sustainable and good for the environment. And pulses just check all those boxes. And so we've seen a tremendous growth uh, in, uh, you know, these products moving into 
all kinds of different foods, in, in, including, you know, pastas and, and baked goods and alternate meats and alternate milk products, uh, all that have become quite popular and are growing. So, you know, the future is pretty bright for, you know, these crops uh, long-term uh, because of, uh, of this movement and, and what they bring to people's health. You know, these are one of the healthiest crops that you can consume. And the added bonuses, you know, they're, they have a very low carbon footprint because they don't use nitrogen fertilizer. They're water efficient. Uh, they don't even take much water to grow. Uh, they're good for soil health. They're great in a cropping system. And on the, you know, the bottom line is they're also good for the planet. And so, and consumers, frankly, are really turning that way. And, and so, you know, that's why we're seeing this growth. Tim, you mentioned it's good for the planet, low water use. Obviously, those are things that we're hearing a lot from the Biden administration and their focus on climate change. As you look out for policy considerations for the pulse industry, is there anything you're watching? Is Are there ways that pulse crops can capitalize on some of the focus for climate change here under this administration? Well, you know, absolutely. I mean, the administration came out uh, with their Climate Smart Ag, uh, you know, initiative here and and uh, partnership for Climate Smart Commodities. And certainly we're going to be, you know, as an organization and industry will be applying for those funds, mostly because we feel pretty, pretty strongly that, uh, you know, that program uh, can really help uh, propel pulse crops uh, into the mainstream. And you know, our goal really as an industry is to become a major part of a cropping system in the United States. And we can do that. There's a pulse crop for every ecosystem in the United States, whether you're in the South or the Central Plains or the Northern Plains. Uh, these crops can be grown and they're good for soil health. Uh, they're good for biodiversity on your farm. Uh, they don't take, you know, nitrogen fertilizer. <laughs> I mean, there's just a lot of benefits. And, and so, you know, our approach, uh, certainly with the, the programming that the Biden administration is coming out with, is to how do you promote these uh, climate-friendly foods? And because, you know, if we don't have a demand for these crops and, and we don't see that demand growth, and then, you know, because we want to get our, uh, you know, our payment from the, from the market, you know, from the marketplace, and we think we can do that. That is fantastic, folks. If you're interested in learning more about pulses, visit usapulses.org. We've been talking to Tim McGreevy. Tim, thanks for taking the time to fill us in on the pulse industry today. Absolutely. Pleasure. Thanks a lot, Mike. And folks, stick around. We're going to talk public lands when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA agriculture of america don't go away more aoa coming right up choose the proven performance of the roundup ready extend crop system featuring high yielding extend flex soybeans and the exceptional weed control of extend to max herbicide with vapor grip technology elite genetics triple herbicide tolerance flexibility that delivers results backed by 25 years of innovation that's the roundup ready extend crop system the system of choice. Extend to Max is a restricted use pesticide. Always follow stewardship practices, all pesticide label directions, and check with your state pesticide regulatory agency for specific restrictions in your state. They say if you listen hard enough, you can hear the corn grow. It's true. When you're out in the field, you understand its challenges and what it needs to thrive. Channel Seedsmen bring insights from the field to our team of bear plant breeders. Their knowledge inspires our product development. From your best ground to your most challenging conditions, our products are designed to perform in your fields. Visit ChannelListens.com to see our latest innovations. Always read and follow IRM where applicable. Grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, as we take a look at the market, trade, grains, and livestock are mostly higher here as we work through our Friday morning. We did get new export sales reported of 108,000 metric tons of soybeans to China, 128,000 metric tons of corn to Japan, and 30,000 metric tons of soybean oil. Two unknown destinations, the beans and bean oil sales were for the 22-23 marketing year. The corn sale is for the current marketing year. Now, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken warned today that a Russian invasion into Ukraine may be imminent, stating, quote, we're in a window when an invasion could begin at any time, and to be clear, that includes during the Olympics. 
Now, the conflict is adding some pre-weekend drama for the commodity markets heading into the weekend as fund managers must ask themselves whether they prefer to go into the weekend long or short the commodities. Some of the commodities that could be most dramatically impacted by military conflict in the region include wheat, corn, sunflower oil, fertilizer, crude oil, and more. And this comes after much of the commodity sector posted a bearish reversal on Thursday as momentum trading computers flipped from buyers to sellers around midday. Right now on the trade, we see March quarter up six and a half, six forty-eight and a quarter. July quarter up six and three quarters, six forty-one and three quarters. March soybeans up nineteen and a half, fifteen ninety-three and three quarters. July beans up seventeen and three quarters at fifteen eighty-nine. March bean meal up six ninety a ton, four sixty ninety. March bean oil up one hundred two point sixty-five fifty-three. March Chicago wheat fourteen higher, seven eighty-five and a half. March Kansas City wheat up nine at eight ten. Spring wheat Minneapolis March up ten and three quarters at nine fifty-three. February hogs up seven ninety twenty-five. April down fifty one hundred two ninety-two. March feeder cattle up one seventy-five one sixty-eight forty-two. February live cattle up one twenty one forty-three fifty-five. April up one forty-two one forty-eight thirty. Crude oil up one twenty-two a barrel ninety-one ten. This is AOA. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Hey Dad, your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey Dad. Your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in today. You know, on this show, we've been talking quite a bit about court cases and how they impact agriculture. You know, we've been discussing this in a number of different contexts, and we're talking about it because these court cases often happen in the background, but these decisions have a real impact on our operations, on our farm ground, etc. Well, there was a court decision yesterday in California, District Court uh, Judge Jerry w- Jeffrey White, excuse me, reversed a 2020 Fish and Wildlife Service rule removing wolves from the endangered species list. Effectively, yesterday, gray wolves were added back to the endangered species list. One of the groups that's disappointed in this decision is the Public Lands Council. Joining me today to talk about it is Executive Director Caitlin Glover. Caitlin, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Well, thanks for having me this morning, Mike. Bring us up to speed on this decision. What was it the judge was looking at when he uh, relisted gray wolves to the endangered species list? So, so Mike, unfortunately, this this particular species, the gray wolf in the United States, has a long history of interaction with the Endangered Species Act. And because of that long history, what we've seen time again is that there are a, a series of judges over the last 40 or 50 years who have looked at uh, their own uh, their their own perspectives on how the Endangered Species Act should operate, what it should consider, and how it should protect species uh, on those lists. What we were hoping that this judge would do was see that the long history of sound science, uh, of adherence to the law, and really the successful recovery of these wolves uh, did warrant the the Fish and Wildlife Service removing those ESA protections at the end of 2020. But unfortunately, this judge decided to continue that long history of judicial activism and and essentially say that the Fish and Wildlife Service didn't do a good enough job in writing the rule and considering the science, um, which really is is not a judicial determination, but but, uh, someone trying to to legislate or, or regulate from the bench. 
We saw Judge White uh, yesterday essentially challenge some of the, the most basic principles of the ESA, saying that the gray wolf wasn't an entity protected under the act because of the way it has been listed over, over time. Now, it's been listed over time in these distinct population segments. Your listeners uh, cover a, a good portion of the United States, and they know that these distinct population segments, these little pockets of wolf packs, um, have been listed differently over time. Wolves in Montana and Idaho have been treated differently under the ESA than wolves in the Great Lakes, for example. So when this judge issued this decision yesterday, he made a determination that uh, because of the way that they had been listed over time, they didn't qualify to be delisted together. That's counter to the science, Mike. It's, it's counter to the, the way the agency ha has approached this issue for, for many years. Uh, and so it's, it's really disappointing for, for us who see the, the recovery on the ground, who see the good work that the agency has done, and, and really bear the brunt of, of the consequences uh, when you don't have management tools for these recovered populations. Well, that's the situation, isn't it, Caitlin, is we have seen recovery of gray wolf numbers. So there are at more gray wolves running across the United States. And now in 45 states, those gray wolves effectively are, are protected. Can you fill our listeners in who are outside the territory of a gray wolf? What does listing on the ESA mean for that species? And what does it mean for landowners who are going to see gray wolves coming and going from their property? You know, Mike, this is so often the disconnect because we, I think generally the, the American public, you know, if you don't have wolves in your backyard, quite literally, um, you think that the Endangered Species Act is this protective law meant to recover and protect certain species um, over time. And certainly that's what I think it was originally intended to do. But there are very real consequences when you continue to protect a species that is well recovered and has robust populations. So, so we, we need to move from this protective, this, this restrictive management uh, into an actual management scenario where we can manage biodiversity. We can manage wolves as part of their wildlife habitat. Because for folks in the Great Lakes region, for folks in, in, in Montana and Idaho and Oregon and Colorado and Utah and all the rest, what we're seeing is that these populations that have rebounded more than 300%, right, they're well exceeding these recovery targets, we're seeing more human-wolf interactions. We're seeing more livestock-wolf interactions. Um, what those interactions look like are significant depredation of livestock. We're seeing significant threats to, you know, kids going to school. Uh, we're seeing significant depredation of, of even elk and deer populations as well. So the consequences of this court decision yesterday, they go far beyond uh, just a, a simple regulatory action. They have real personal impacts for the people who are losing 26 calves in a season or who are seeing a significant portion of their, their sheep and their lamb crop um, taken in any given year because these, these wolves are, are competing for territory, competing for food, and competing for habitat. Absolutely. Caitlin, what's the next step? This was a circuit court in California. Obviously, there are there are ongoing questions about the science. There are concerns about the impact of this decision. What happens next with regard to gray wolves on the endangered species list? So, so in the interim, what we've seen, you know, the judge, the judge's decision essentially began the process uh, for wolves to, to be managed again under or protected again under the ESA. Now, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and other interveners have the opportunity to appeal this decision for the next 60 days. And from the Public Lands Council perspective, we, we absolutely expect um, the administration to, to appeal, right? The science is clear. The process is clear. This is the best possible outcome for wolf management in the country. And so we see no reason that the administration should not appeal. It would be very disappointing if they didn't take that step. But, but in the interim, you know, we, what we see is, is the opportunity to appeal, to take this through the court system, like we have done for the, the past 20, 25 years, right? This is, this is Groundhog Day, unfortunately. Um, but, but then what we also see is, is a, a need to continue communicating and continue to, to prove, right, through, through good science, good monitoring, um, that the wolves are recovered. Uh, we expect, you know, if, if the agency doesn't move to uh, an administrative or a legal appeal, we do expect uh, an, another regulatory activity. Again, we, we believe that this would be unnecessary because the wolves 
are recovered and are delisted, um, but we are prepared to continue to defend that delisting regardless of, of what that path looks like. Unfortunately, Mike, this is a, a fight that we have fought for for many years, uh, and we will continue to fight for sound science, for the application of, of, of on-the-ground management that matches the reality, but also we continue to support the ESA uh, because as it was written uh, is, is and how it was intended uh, would allow for a delisting to happen. It's clear to me from this judge's decision yesterday uh, that the goal is to never be able to delist a species, uh, which just really doesn't match what, what, what the ESA was intended to do. It doesn't, but Caitlin, that is a fear. I have heard from a lot of producers around the country that perhaps this administration or a, a, a future administration could look to use the, the ESA as a tool to effectively put on lifetime controls, lifetime protections for these animals. As you look out for the rest of the year, are there any other Endangered Species Act issues that uh, you think growers need to be aware of? Oh, oh absolutely, Mike. And unfortunately, the Endangered Species Act is one of the environmental activists' favorite tools to, to use as a blunt hammer to stop all activity, all management, really to the detriment of a lot of these ecosystems. It's not just gray wolves. It's, it's grizzly bears. It's uh, some flowers. It, there are a series of grasses that are up for, up for consideration under the ESA. But then there are also all of these other environmental laws that really are truly in foundational environmental laws that over time, through excessive litigation and frivolous litigation, we have seen molded into, uh, again, other hammers to be used against the land, the water, and the people who take care of them, like farmers and ranchers. We're going to be watching the waters of the United States process very clearly. We just submitted comments earlier this week. The National Environmental Policy Act is going to face some revisions this year, as is the Endangered Species Act itself. For your listeners in the West, where we're on sage grouse and lesser prairie chicken, and, and you can be sure that there are going to be more of these considerations as we go throughout the year. But I, I think yeah. it's important to remember as well that there are drought and fire and a lot of other considerations that affect our producers every day. And so we're going to be working with Congress and the administration to make sure the producers have the tools they need. Because it's not just these big threats, these big legal threats, right? It's, it's the, the very real everyday challenges that affect their ability to be profitable and, and to be sustainable. And Caitlin, in your conversations with folks on Capitol Hill and in the regulatory bodies, are they willing to follow the science as you present uh, information? So, so I, I, I want to say yes, right? You know, I, I think that there is generally a disagreement about what sound science is. And this is, you know, the discussion that we have with ESA and NEPA and WOTUS, whose science is the better science? Whose science is the real science? And so the biggest challenge that we have is setting that scientific threshold to make sure that, that there are those place-based solutions. Because whether it's peer-reviewed, whether it's anecdotal, whether it's trend monitoring over time, we need to make sure that the science that matches the on-the-ground reality is the science that guides management and implementation. So, so Mike, I'd love to be able to say yes, but I think it, it really depends, and it's a case-by-case it's a -case basis, unfortunately, on, on which science is, is chosen on the day. And, you know, that's a theme I'm hearing from a lot of folks who are engaged in having these conversations in D.C. It is not a tough job. It's not an easy job, I should say. Caitlin Glover from the Public Lands Council, thanks for coming on the show today to fill us in on this great wolf issue. Thanks for having me, Mike. And folks, stick around when AOA returns. We'll talk with Dr. Ellen Wald about what's going on in the diesel market. Stick around on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block, 
maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach, and in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had to tell everything's changed. I had to tell. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. The landscape of media has changed, and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Each and every day, DTN and Progressive Farmer editors are posting unique, original content to their website at DTNPF.com, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day -day business decisions. Their award-winning newsroom covers markets, news, and weather, while also providing insights on crops, cattle, equipment technology, and more. You'll find innovative topics like, would you plant soybeans in December? Experiments look at the possibility of boosting yields with early planting. Want to save time? Learn how through autonomous machinery systems. Will there be a surge in feed prices in 2021? And what's today's weather forecast for my farm? The editors of DTN and Progressive Farmer are committed to delivering the essential intelligence farmers need every day to help your farm business be more efficient and profitable. Visit DTNPF.com today. Considering an online pharmacy? Explore BeSafeRx to find useful information and resources to help you purchase medicines safely online. A safe online pharmacy requires a doctor's prescription, has an address in the United States, has a licensed pharmacist, and is licensed by a state pharmacy board. It's best to stay away from online pharmacies that don't meet these criteria. Discover more helpful tips and resources at BeSafeRx. Go to FDA.gov slash BeSafeRx. Choose the proven performance of the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, featuring high-yielding Extend Flex soybeans and the exceptional weed control of Extend to Max herbicide with Vapor Grip technology. Elite genetics, triple herbicide tolerance, flexibility that delivers results, backed by 25 years of innovation. That's the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, the system of choice. Extend to Max is a restricted-use pesticide. Always follow stewardship practices, all pesticide label directions, and check with your state pesticide regulatory agency for specific restrictions in your state. They say if you listen hard enough, you can hear the corn grow. It's true. When you're out in the field, you understand its challenges and what it needs to thrive. Channel Seedsmen bring insights from the field to our team of Bayer plant breeders. Their knowledge inspires our product development. From your best ground to your most challenging conditions, our products are designed to perform in your fields. Visit ChannelListens.com to see our latest innovations. Always read and follow IRM where applicable. Grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. 
This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today, ladies and gentlemen. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine, and he told me that there was some corn going in the ground yesterday across the Big Bend region of Texas, kind of south of Houston there along the Gulf Coast. It got me thinking, we are not far away from American farmers needing to burn a lot of diesel fuel to get our crops in the ground. Well, diesel prices have been moving. I figured it was time to check in on what's happening in the energy complex. Turn to our friend, Dr. Ellen Wald, the author of Saudi Inc. and uh, owner of Transversal Consulting, crude oil market analyst, Ellen, diesel markets are kind of going crazy around the world. What has happened in that space? Yeah, I mean, we're seeing we're seeing a lot of very high prices, uh, particularly right now. And, and this is due to a bunch of, of issues. Um, the physical market, first of all, is quite tight right now. Um, there's definitely seeing higher demand for uh, crude oil for um, a variety of different oil products, basically everything except for jet fuel. Uh, demand is up. And so uh, at the same time, though, uh, we're not seeing a whole lot of new production coming on the market. So um, production in the United States is basically stable about you know, a little more than a million barrels a day last or about, about that from where it has been. Uh, we're seeing OPEC uh, countries and, and OPEC plus countries not increasing production as much as they have, uh, basically as, as much as they're allowed to. Some countries are really unable to increase production more. And then on top of that, we've got a whole bunch of geopolitical issues that are also affecting the market that are causing uh, risk premiums on top of this tight physical market. So the situation in uh, the Ukraine is really causing uh, a lot of um, a, a lot of, of um, concern in the oil market because Russia is a big oil producer and the United States has threatened uh, a lot of, of sanctions potentially on Russian oil, but also because the area that we're talking about in uh, Eastern Europe um, is very connected to an area where they do a lot of exporting of various products. And so there's concern that if there is any kind of, of violence or military activity there, that this will disrupt uh, the transportation of supplies. That makes a lot of sense. Anytime bullets fly, it's tough to get products out of those countries. Ellen, I want to come back to something you mentioned. You said we're seeing risk premium added to the market as I look down crude oil pricing here today. All the way through the end of, uh, of just 2022, we're north of $80. We're supposed to add risk premium to pull supply online. Why isn't supply coming back? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you, it used to be, in fact, um, before we, basically before this, this pandemic, that as soon as oil prices uh, would go up, we'd see um, drillers putting, uh, you know, putting more rigs into, uh, in, into, into action. We'd see a lot of, of production come on the market, and then that would, uh, in turn, kind of push things down. Uh, for example, if you look at, at 2018, when uh, prices were quite high, uh, we did see, you know, in around September, we did see prices uh, climb into the 80s, and, and I think Brent even uh, went above, above 90. And then um, we had OPEC putting more production on the market and also shale producers. And by December, prices were back in the 50s, uh, but we're not seeing that now. And part of it has to do with the fact that the industry underwent a lot of consolidation and uh, a lot of, of whip Almost, a, it was a very traumatic period in uh, 2020 for the um, for the the um, producers in the United States, and so we're seeing a lot of hesitancy to um, put more rigs into production, to put more oil into production. That's due both to capital discipline. They um, have really been, been making positive cash flow and they want to return value to shareholders. But there's also concern uh, about regulatory uncertainty from the Biden administration. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty about 
uh, new permitting, methane regulations, transportation, uh, things like that. Uh, I do want to point out, though, that there is um, there are some bright spots. Uh, for example, Canadian oil production has really uh, increased and, and taken off. And despite the fact that the Keystone XL pipeline was canceled, uh, there is a lot more Canadian oil that's being transported south and actually is being uh, is, is reaching global markets through uh, the Gulf uh, transportation system. So uh, while the U.S. isn't really uh, increasing production that much, there are other areas like Canada that we are seeing uh, movement on. Ellen, with those uh, those Canadian tar sands, is with the cancellation of the Keystone XL pipeline, is this additional Canadian crude being brought to the Gulf Coast by truck and train? So there are um, other pipelines that have come online. So we're seeing uh, pipelines. We're also seeing, uh, you know, we're seeing truck and train as, as well. But um, and I think that that had the Keystone XL pipeline been put into, uh, you know, had actually been built, we'd be seeing a lot, uh, a lot more. It wouldn't be nearly as expensive. Um, there wouldn't be, you know, transportation premiums on on all of this, um, and it would also be a lot safer. Ellen, before we let you go, natural gas prices coming off their second peak of the year. Are we seeing that market simmer down? So I think that that does have uh, something to do with weather because, um, you know, if we're heading into a period of, of less uh, cold temperatures, then uh, we may see natural gas prices uh, coming off. But really what we are experiencing now is a total dislocation in the in the U.S. of utility prices. Typically, uh, utility prices are actually lower in the winter months than they are in the summer months. But for the past two years and, and continuing on now, we've just seen utility prices climbing higher and higher. And this is, is partially due uh, to the, the huge switch that we saw away from coal to natural gas and so our utility prices are totally connected to, to natural gas and there's so much natural gas demand now uh, and that we are we're not entirely keeping up with it so uh, that's something to keep an eye on uh, going forward it, it is indeed dr ellen wald author of saudi inc thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today thanks and folks, thank you so much for tuning in. Come back on Monday. We'll talk weather with John Baranek of DTN Weather and Policy with our friend Jackie Fatka from Farm Progress. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thanks for listening to AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Today, more than 6 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's, and more than 11 million family members and friends serve as their caregivers. While researchers are working tirelessly to end Alzheimer's and all other dementia, the number of people living with Alzheimer's is expected to more than double by 2050. The toll of the disease is monumental, and its devastation affects family, friends, and especially caregivers. No one should face Alzheimer's and dementia by themselves, if you or someone you know is struggling to provide care to a loved one, please share this message. You are not alone. Free help and resources are available 24-7. To talk with an expert and obtain disease-related information, care and support services, call 800-272-3900.